So uh, something happened a couple, couple of weeks ago that was kind of instrumental in choosing this particular parable that we're going to look at this morning. And uh, I was talking to my boss, and uh, she's in the process of moving out of her house of 30 years and downsizing into a, a condo. And she was telling me about all the furniture she was getting rid of and then uh, asked if I wanted a desk. And I said, no, immediately. We have actually three desks at home right now, and one uh, is waiting to be given to someone else because we don't have enough room for those three. But then she texted me a picture of this desk, and I took a look at it, and it, was, uh, it wasn't really our style. It's, it's one of those secretary desks, tall. It's got the glass doors, and the, the, door, uh, the desktop drops down. You've got the, cap, uh, the four drawers at the bottom, and it really wasn't anything uh, that ordinarily we would pick out. But I said, yes, we'll take it. My wife wasn't real happy later on when I told her. I was thinking, oh, here's a piece. She, she likes to refinish wood, and I thought this is a piece she might like to refinish. But the first thing she said to me is, where in the world are we going to put it? And after I thought about it later on, kind of came to my senses about it, I, I sort of was wondering, well, what is the problem with me? Why? What is it about something free, some free item, that makes me just start to salivate? And I feel like, yeah, I've got to collect this thing. I've got to have this. So now, next week sometime, I've got to drive an hour and pick up this desk that we don't want, we can't fit, and I hope my boss never sees this particular uh, video. <laughs> So uh, we're looking this morning at uh, one of the several parables that Jesus uses to teach about money and about possessions. And depending on how we define parable, different scholars define it a little differently. There are anywhere between 30 to 39 that Jesus spoke from. And as uh, Ryan has told us, that's about 35% of all of Jesus' teaching. So if we do the math on that one, that means, oh, about a third of that teaching is about money, about possessions, about wealth. So I'll let you draw the conclusion about what that might mean. Let's take a look at the scripture. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me as a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be in your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself 
but is not rich toward God. Let's pray together. We thank you for the teachings that we have that are passed down through the scriptures, Lord. And we ask this morning that as we look at this parable, another in a series of parables, that you would open our ears to hear, help us to take from this what you have for us this morning or uh, what you might have for others. We ask that your spirit would be in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. So someone in the crowd asked Jesus, or actually says to Jesus, would you solve an uh, inheritance dispute with me? And we don't really get the backstory here. Maybe this fellow figured, uh, had heard about Jesus and figured uh, he's a wise teacher. He uh, perhaps can give some advice uh, for us in this matter. But we're not sure why he asked. Jesus, though, doesn't want anything to do with this little inheritance rift or dispute. But instead, he uses this opportunity. Perhaps he senses something in this guy who's asking him, but he uses this opportunity to change the direction of the teaching, as he so often does. And he turns it into a teaching about possessions, about wealth, about the future. And as Jesus gets into his parable, in just a few sentences, we have a good sense of who this guy is in the parable. He's a landowner, and he starts to have this little inner monologue with himself. Interestingly, by the way, uh, as I was studying this, I learned that uh, it's uh, often Luke uses this sort of uh, as a, a device. He has people have interior monologues, and usually that's a suggestion to the readers that this person who's having this monologue, this interior talking to himself, is probably not a good guy. Which made me a little nervous at first. I tend to talk to myself a lot. But I think it's just a literary device here <clears throat> that Luke likes to use. And uh, in his little speech that he gives himself, if we break it down, uh, according to the Greek, four times he speaks of himself. He says, I or my. Four times my. Eight times he says to himself, I. So this little speech he gives himself is all about himself. And at the end, end of his monologue, he even congratulates himself and says, you know, I've done a good job. I've, I've, I've created a lifestyle for myself. I've, I've saved all this surplus. Man, I'm going to live good. I'm going to eat, drink, be merry. And in many ways, if we step back and think of this man, he really seems to have lived an exemplary life. I mean, it seems he's a great steward of money. He works hard. He plans for the future. He saves his money. He, he protects his belongings. He has big vision for how things should work out. Certainly not lazy or wasteful. So he's saving some money for a, a good retirement. If we didn't know the context, we might say, man, this guy is living the American dream. He's got it together. Until we hear from God, and God speaks to him. Another interesting uh, tidbit I found, uh, this is the only parable where 
Jesus had, has God actually speaking in the parable. Interesting. We're not sure exactly how God speaks to him, whether it's directly or a dream or some kind of vision. But uh, in the parable, God doesn't say much, except he says to this fellow, you're a fool. You're a fool. And soon you're going to be gone. Now, I think if, if we want to understand the meaning and, and the application of this parable, it's fairly straightforward. It's a lesson, a, a cautionary tale of what Jesus is, or some of what Jesus is telling us as followers not to be. Don't be people whose identities are so wrapped up in your things, in your possessions, in your wealth. And I think we could add to that list the things that come along with wealth, often status, in position, achievement. Don't be driven in this life to simply acquire those things. And I, I'm going to go out on a limb, but I would say probably most of us here are not like the fellow in this parable. We have not allowed wealth, we haven't allowed possessions to become our, our source of security. Most of us here, again, I'll go out on a limb, I don't know everyone, but we're probably uh, sort of middle class in terms of our economic system here in the U.S. of A. <clears throat> I looked at uh, some research, and in 2020, middle class was defined as, uh, by Pew Research as 52000 or 160000 yearly income for, uh, for two people. So if we're in that range, that's the middle class. And so this may uh, lead to a sense for us that, well, maybe this parable isn't really for me. I don't seem to fit uh, the parameters of, of this fellow in Jesus' parable. Yet, given the amount of time that Jesus addresses this issue of wealth, of money, of possessions, and its dangers, I think it is a good practice to regularly remind ourselves, no matter where we are financially or economically, to remind ourselves to kind of reevaluate, to think through how we think about money and uh, what we do with our money. Being consumed by possessions, Jesus reminds us, we know it's not the right way to live, and most of us do not live like that. But I think more dangerous, probably because it's so subtle, are the small ways you know, those little times when you might see a desk that you have no need for, but because it's free, you think, I need to acquire that. I need to somehow get that. We are surrounded by a culture that values finances, that values money, that values things. And we're constantly bombarded with those messages. We live in the middle of it all the time. And yet, God calls that a foolish thing to pursue. And instead, instead says, we should not be pursuing those kinds of things. We should be pursuing being rich toward God. This parable reminds us that any kind of pursuit of possessions, any kind of pursuit of wealth can get in the way of being rich toward God. Jesus is reminding us to examine our lives. 
What are our lives oriented towards? Is our life rich towards God and, and towards what God has for the future? Or are our lives oriented to this world primarily and what we can gain and produce and acquire here? The parable reminds us that we are not defined by what we possess, but we are defined by what possesses us. I have an inkling that today's Super Bowl commercials will not be delivering that message. They'll be telling us the complete opposite. For, for uh, value in your life, for happiness, for position, for status, you need things. So often says our world. Now that meaning, that application that I just shared uh, on the parable is what I'm comfortable being fairly dogmatic about. That, that's kind of an oxymoron, I guess, to be fairly dogmatic. But uh, I feel very comfortable standing up here and saying that's, what, that's the message that Jesus has for us uh, out of this parable. But as I've been uh, reading this past week and sort of mulling over some other ideas, there are some other possibilities. And uh, these possibilities are especially obvious when we look at the passages that the parable is sandwiched between. So if we look at verses 1 through 12, Jesus is addressing mostly his disciples. And he's saying, don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't worry about the persecution that might come. Trust me. And then verses 14 through 34 are those well-known passages where Jesus is saying, don't worry about food. Don't even worry about clothing. Trust me. A lot of those pieces are part of the Sermon on the Mount that, is, uh, that Matthew collects all together in, in, his, uh, in the chapters 5 through 7. But Luke has it here uh, surrounding this parable. So we get the sense that Luke is telling us perhaps a little bit more about the dangers of pursuing wealth and possessions. So these are some applications that I'm not uh, ready to say definitively. Um, this is what you should take away from this, but I am saying these are some things that I think we ought to be thinking about and wondering about. And I'll admit they've kind of stirred me up a bit this week as I've been reading them and even uh, made me a bit uncomfortable because it means I've got some work to do in this area, work that I didn't think I really had to do. It's not the best term, but you might call uh, these kinds of applications a more radical application of what commitment to the kingdom really looks like concerning our possessions, concerning our wealth. I mean, just a few verses later, Jesus says, bright red letters, if you have the red letter edition, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Is he really calling each of us here to do that this morning? Are we supposed to say goodbye to all the IRAs, the insurance plans, the, you know, the second homes, the whatever? Is, are we being called to do that? Reminded me of uh, some relatives of mine. And uh, in the last five years, uh, um, 
this guy, uh, the couple, this guy and the couple um, lost his parents. And his parents were quite well off and, uh, in fact, owned quite a bit of land, oceanfront land. Big bucks, worth it, big bucks. And unfortunately, as so often happens, there was a little inheritance dispute within the family. There were three brothers that were supposed to share this inheritance, and it got ugly, as these things so often do. Well, my relative, because of that, and he's a believer, prayed it through and thought it through and decided to say, forget it. We don't want any of it. Keep it all. If this is what it's going to come to, if this is what it's going to do, it's yours. And so they gave up all that potential income, all that potential property. I was very um, struck by their decision to do that. But as we continue to read uh, in this chapter of Luke, there are just so many challenging thoughts. Are we really not supposed to worry about food and clothes? Are we supposed to trust that just as God feeds birds and causes grass to grow, in the same manner he will take care of our needs? Our needs for food, for shelter, for clothing? Should I have surplus myself when I live in a world where persistent poverty is all over the place? Stewardship, investment, insurance, pensions, IRAs, responsible planning for the future. That's all wise, isn't it? It makes sense, doesn't it? And yet Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians how so often God flips the script on what is foolish. So that even here we have this man who on the surface looks like just a great business manager. And yet God calls him a fool. Uh, you probably have heard uh, of the name John Wesley. He was a, a British minister, a theologian, an evangelist. Uh, probably most likely known for the revival movement that he led that eventually became known as Methodism. And Methodists still uh, are with us in this world today. And uh, Wesley once gave a sermon that he called The Use of Money. And in it he stated this principle, a three-step principle. Gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And I think there's some good sense to that. It's wise to save what we can. And to get all you can, you know, in order to give to those who need, we need to be getting as well. We need to be earning. So it seems like a pretty solid principle. Although later in his life, Wesley grew concerned about this movement that he started, this Methodist movement. And he started thinking that wealth and the failure to do the third part, to give, was becoming the most serious threat to not only the Methodist movement, but to Christianity in general. He had been noticing that so many were focusing on those first two parts. Get all you can, save all you can, but it stopped there. 
So later in his life, he wrote a piece called Thoughts Upon Methodism. This was about five years before he died. And he writes this. The Methodists in every place grow diligent and frugal. Consequently, they increase in goods. Sounds okay. But hence, they proportionately increase in pride, in anger, in the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life, so that although the form of religion remains, the spirit is swiftly vanishing. I was reading a piece by Kurt Struckmeyer uh, that he wrote in a bigger piece called The Bigger Barn Economy, that title relating to our parable, of course. He writes that as human beings, our hearts get filled with worry, insecurity, self-concern. We get anxious about the future. Whether we admit it or not, we realize that in a largely selfish world, others will be indifferent to our needs and our welfare. And we thus believe we must care for ourselves first and provide for our own future security at the expense of anyone else. Some call this practical atheism, meaning that um, in theory, one certainly believes in God and wants to live one's life in that manner. But based on how we live, we're sort of living almost like atheists, not trusting what God has told us. Roger Olson is a guy I like to read a lot. He has a blog, and he's an evangelical theologian and ethicist. And uh, in his most recent blog entry, he wrote this. One thing that surprised me when I was researching the history of Christian ethics were the views of many of the great Christians of the past. John Chrysostom, for example, believed and preached that government should guarantee a home, shelter, and basic sustenance for everybody, including the poor. Martin Luther believed that an ideal Christian society would share a common purse. Pietist patriarch Philip Spencer, Spenner believed it is the duty of government to provide jobs for everyone. And we're talking about some of the early Christian fathers that um, helped us to understand Christianity in a way that still impacts us today. In this same blog, Olson wrote, What would Jesus advocate for if he were here? the old, you know, WWJD. If he were here in person physically today, I believe he would speak out prophetically, as did the Hebrew prophets, against those who advocate government that allows the weak, the disadvantaged, the sick, the disabled, the poor to fall through the cracks, simply to keep in place economic freedom for the rich and the powerful. So as I was reading about this and reading some of these uh, reactions and other interpretations of the parable, I sort of went, slipped into what I call my Sermon on the Mount syndrome. I've studied the Sermon on the Mount for a long time, and still to this day, I'm challenged by it because I'm not sure 
how far we're supposed to go with it. Maybe you've had the same issue. And so, since portions of Luke 12 really are pieces of the Sermon on the Mount message, I kind of ran into that again, trying to figure out how do we really read these hard passages? These passages that seem to call us to a life that's radical for our culture, and not just our secular culture, radical for our Christian culture. How are we supposed to respond to these phrases, these teachings like, sell your possessions, give to the poor? How literal do we take them? How pragmatic, though, do we have to be to be in this culture at this time? How necessary or mandatory are these teachings? Do we take them at their face value? Really? Really do it? Or is it maybe an ideal that we're supposed to be aiming for? Or perhaps more it's a look into what the kingdom is going to be when it's finally and fully realized. And right now we're, we're in this sort of yet but not yet part of the kingdom being here, but not in its fullness. Maybe these kinds of passages are just for, you know, the super-Christians, for the, the pastors, the missionaries, the monks, whatever. I'm just going to leave that hanging for all of us to be thinking about on our own. But I do want to conclude with this. Ultimately, Jesus' parables call followers to live out our new identities. We're new creations in the kingdom of God. And Jesus calls us to be his people and to do as he did and to do as he taught. But we're enabled to do this by his Holy Spirit. And so as we live in this continued close relationship with him, we are challenged and enabled to live in the ways of the values and teachings of Jesus. So that as we think about these kinds of issues, I think our motivation for how we deal with possessions, how we keep a proper perspective on those things, our motivation for generous living and giving, especially to those who don't have, our motivation for ordering our own personal finances, right, for planning for now. I'm 63, I'm going to be retiring soon. We're thinking about that. How do I do that in a God-honoring way? Our motivation for even our economic philosophy and framework. Our motive for being rich toward God is going to come, hopefully, from this motivation of gratitude and devotion to and for the love of God the Father, Son, and Spirit. It will come from a relationship that includes loving God with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our heart. When we're in that kind of relationship, that kind of connection with God, it will come. That right attitude towards things, towards money, towards possessions. I was thinking perhaps 
really a better title for this parable would be the poor fool. Because basically, by the way he was living, he seemed to have no interest and no need for God. And so, I feel kind of bad for this guy in the parable. Here he is thinking he's got you know, it all together. He's done everything he should have. I'm set up for life. I'm just going to relax, eat, drink, and enjoy life. And yet, from God's perspective, he had nothing that he needed, both in this life and the life to come. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that you would help us in all matters of worries of this life, the challenges that it brings to us in, in terms of wealth and possessions. Help us to be the kind of people, form us, to have the kind of faith and trust that enables us to view money and possessions as you do. May it be, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.